to Rancho this morning, whether you're joining us in person or you're joining us online, we are so glad that you are here. If we haven't had a chance to connect yet, my name is Carissa, and we're continuing our series this morning on mercy, justice, and love. We're going to talk about what it looks like to have a heart for the hurting. And I am joined by three people who all have demonstrated that they have a heart for the hurting, and you all show up in pretty incredible ways on a consistent basis. We have Elaine here, who is the director at Safe Harbor Counseling Center, and Rachel, who you've heard from a lot because she's been a big part of driving this series. She is our local outreach pastor. And David, who is one of our youth leaders, who has been a part of really coming alongside our teenagers and caring for them when they are hurting and in need, and who also serves as one of the teachers at our school. So I'm excited for you to get to hear from some of their experience today, because here's what I know. I haven't been around Rancho for very long. I'm just a couple of months old on the team. But what is really apparent to me about all of you is that you already have a heart for the hurting. That's not something that we need to try to convince you of today. You already know how important people are to God. We are a diverse community of friends advancing the cause of Christ through mercy and justice and love, and, and you're already doing that in beautiful ways. What I want us to talk a little bit about today is how sometimes we experience some internal resistance when we're faced with someone else's pain or grief or disappointment. And grief can look like lots of different things. It's not always the loss of someone we love. Sometimes it's the death of a dream or the death of a relationship or you know, even the death of a vocation. But sometimes when we're faced with it, we experience this internal resistance. And I know we have, and, and I, I would imagine that you maybe have as well. And so can we start there today? What does that internal resistance look like in your life? For me, I know it's, it's fear at times. Sometimes it's scary, you know, if somebody's in um, some real grief or hurting really badly. Um, there's a little bit of fear, you know, what do I say? What do I do? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, for me, it's kind of that fear in the back of my head that might, you know, make me not acknowledge or, or even run the other way sometimes, you know, because yeah. scary. You or know. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, I don't want to make it worse. Right. right. I have a servant's heart and I want to, I want to help. Like you said, I want to help, but it can be, well, where do I help? How do I help? Well, for me, it's been easier with the people that I build relationships with because I'm a youth leader, so I've known a lot of my high schoolers for years and years. And as a teacher, I get to have students over and over. So I get to know their hurts, I get to know their family lives, I get to know what they struggle with. And it builds that community because, you know, Jesus, he, he lived with people, he yeah. had meals with them, he had people with, he had meals with outcasts, and he wouldn't fix their problems right away all the time. He would build that relationship and build that camaraderie and, and slowly work that way kind of piggyback on what you were saying, I do. I think we have this inclination to want to help people and, you know, take away the sadness and to maybe encourage them or throw platitudes at them, maybe even spiritual ones that um, kind of can feel like spiritual shaming even. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, so it makes us hesitate. It makes us hesitate to know what to do or say. Even professional counselors don't always, always know what mm -hmm. to do or what to say. Yeah. But what a lot of studies have shown on like intense grief or deep loss is that a lot of times what's most important is just to provide acknowledgement mm -hmm. in the beginning, is just to show up 
And you don't have to know what to say. You don't have to be worried about making it worse. It's just showing up with someone and saying, this must be so hard, mm -hmm. what you're going through. I, I, I can't believe you're going through this. Mm -hmm. Sitting in that darkness with them, giving them permission to actually have the pain, have the suffering. Yeah, I love that because I think, you know, we, we live in this world and we always want to be happy, mm -hmm. you know, and we want joy and we want everybody around us to be happy. And sometimes we have a hard time just kind of sitting in our pain and in our grief. Um, and I do believe that will cause problems later on. I'm sure you can speak into that later on down the road, you know, when we don't deal with these things or we aren't acknowledging this in other people, sometimes we even try to rush them past their grief, you know, by saying it's okay or some time has gone by, you know, you should be better maybe, um, where every, you know, it looks different for every person. So um, I know in my life, just an acknowledgement, like I understand, I'm so sorry you're hurting, you know, just that acknowledgement that it's there, um, and that I'm here for you, even without words, just a presence is so much. Exactly. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have the exact same experience, especially because, especially with our younger kiddos, this is the first time often that they are experiencing something so monumental, something so much bearing on their soul. Like as adults or, you know, grownups, we get to experience that more and more, get to, but then our kiddos... This is their first time. And just being there for these people and saying, you can reveal this to me, or you can bring this that was in the shadows of your soul into the light. That first step can be a change that they need to start down that path and send them on. Yeah, and just, you know, to me, it's just showing up, whether it's just that text to say, I know you're going through something rough, or like, how are you doing today? Um, if you even think about it, Jesus wept with people. Like he really felt emotion with them. And I don't know, that just always strikes me. I mean, he had the power to fix everything, but yeah. he just wept with people and gave them the permission to feel those emotions that those emotions give us depth. They do. Right? They do. I know I've been guilty of trying to rush people through uncomfortable emotions to get to the joy. And I've gotten better about it over the years. And it's just been recently that I discovered why I was so quick to try to get people past it and, and into this happy space. And what I read recently is that when we have our own unresolved pain, unresolved grief and disappointment that we you know, have kind of locked away and, and, and put off to the side, oftentimes because that's what we needed to do to survive, quite frankly. But then when we have that, and then we sit down across from someone who's experiencing pain and grief and loss, even though their story is different from ours, we're wired to experience and feel their emotion. And so when we have that unprocessed stuff, and then we're sitting across from someone, what's often happening is it's picking at that scab. And, and I then begin to feel my own uncomfortable stuff that I really don't want to deal with or haven't known how to deal with. And so then I'm trying to rush and fix. And what I've discovered is the more I've allowed my own disappointment um, to be processed in safe places and the more I've allowed the work and the healing to happen, the more I'm able to sit with people. And it's been a really tangible thing that I've seen in my own, you know, 
story. So, you know, we have access today to more pain and disappointment and hurt than we ever have before, than any other generation. I mean, all you have to do is open up your phone, an app, turn on the television, and it's story after story after story of real pain. And the last couple of years, I think, have been even more tremendous. And, you know, there's something called compassion fatigue that I think is important for us to talk through as we talk about a heart for the hurting. And so, Elaine, talk to us about what is compassion fatigue? Right, so compassion fatigue is kind of more than just like burnout or being overwhelmed. Compassion fatigue is when you kind of just emotionally take on the residue of other people's pain or trauma. So a lot of pastors, counselors, teachers, nurses, like anyone in helping professions, but it's also just all of us, right? Like if you are taking care of children on a day-to-day basis or an elderly parent, or even if you just have a lot going on that you're helping with in your life, sometimes you can have actual fatigue. Mm -hmm. And so we do recommend the best way to combat that is to make sure that you are taking care of yourself as well, filling your cup, Mm -hmm. whether it's spending time with friends or, you know, doing your exercise or just even setting those boundaries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Christ himself was that example. And you're going to talk about that later today. He took time Mm -hmm. to care for himself so that he could give his best to others. Yeah. I think that that's so important because I also, I'm an empath on top of it. Um, And if you don't know what that means, it's a highly sensitive person. And so I will actually like Elaine was describing, I will feel myself the pain of other people. And there's some days where I I might not have done any physical activity at all, but by the end of the day, I'm done. I am wiped out. And those times away that, you know, boundaries and balancing is so important for me. It's getting in my garden, you know, and just spending the time in there with the plants and the dirt and the seed. And it's very therapeutic for me. And it just kind of does, it gives me a rest, a nice rest from everything going on. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm such an empathetic, empathetic. I have a lot of empathy for people myself (laughs) and I get to, you know, it's a privilege. Like for those of you who have talked to or had those deep personal conversations with someone, you know, that it's, it's an honor to be that person for them to open up to. And so I take that completely with, with honor and, and I place that um, at the level it's supposed to be. So I do feel that a little bit bit more. And especially the last couple of years, like you said, it's been more and more and more, Mm -hmm. you know, different uh, depression with divorce, with loss, with so much that our, our young people and everyone else is facing. It's hard to combat it. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's been acknowledging and saying, I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to be the only person in this conversation. You know, my, I was a homeschooler, so I didn't have the same route as a lot of my students, Mm -hmm. but I still learned my own, learned how to get over my own or get through a lot of my own struggles because I reached out to others. I, I sought the help of others and I can help these people by listening by taking them as far as I can and walking with them, but then I can call them the big guns. <laughs> you know, go to go to someone like Elaine or go to God because it's that supernatural aspect that He only can do yeah. that will help take them the rest of the way. So I think we forget sometimes too that you know it is it is sometimes just as simple as showing up or showing love. 
And love is healing. You know, we, we forget that sometimes, that love is healing. And it's not the, you know, the immediate miracle right before our eyes, but loving someone through a process or through years sometimes is very healing to the person and to yourself. It really is. To letting them know they're seen. Oh, that's, that's what we all want. Right. We want to be seen mm-hmm. and understood and valued. And the three of you do that so incredibly well. Thank you for joining me. Would you give them a hand this morning? Really, really good stuff. You know, when I think of some of my own resistance to those around me who were hurting in deep ways, it really wasn't that long ago that this was really difficult for me to do. I remember when I first transitioned from being a youth pastor to ministering and and working with adults, all of a sudden I was put on the pastoral care rotation. And what would happen is people would call into the church and they'd have a need or they'd need to talk to a pastor or they would just need counsel or prayer. And if I was pastor of the week that week, they got me. And that wasn't a great thing in the beginning. I can remember feeling a lot of anxiety when I would see those appointments pop up on my calendar. And it's for a lot of the reasons that you just heard us talk about. I never knew what I was walking into. I never knew what the other person was gonna share with me. And and there's something about the title of pastor that we get to carry some of the greatest parts of people's lives with them and we also get to carry some of the most painful parts of life with people. And for the first couple of years that I was privileged to, to be in that space, I didn't, I didn't look forward to it. I had anxiety. I was afraid because I didn't want to say the wrong thing and I didn't know how to help. And I felt this pressure to try to fix and solve. And quite frankly, I am still not qualified to fix and solve all of the problems. What happened though was I discovered along the way that when we're in pain, when we're hurting, the thing that we really need the most is someone who will listen, someone who will hold this space with us without judging, without rushing to fix things. That if you look at the neuroscience, there's actually healing and integration that takes place in our brain when someone listens to us without trying to fix. When they allow us to just be who we are in the moment and they accept us and love us in that space. And so as I began to trust that that could be enough, just that listening and asking questions and some of the things that Elaine talked about, praying with them and for them and then if necessary, referring them out to other additional resources, I began to see that as more of just a sacred space. And so here's the thing today, the the number one thing that I want you to walk out of here with is that God has a heart for the hurting, and that includes you. When we think about God having a heart for the hurting, we often think about the people in our life that are suffering, the people in our life that have experienced loss. We think about all of those in our community and around the world who are experiencing hurt and suffering. But friend, I'm here to tell you today that God has a heart for you, for your sorrow, for your pain, for your grief, for your disappointment. And that really when we think about having a heart for the hurting, it has to start here. So we're gonna look at the life and the ministry of Jesus because there are some things that I think we can learn from him as we consider what it looks like 
to have a heart for the hurting. And the first one is that it's necessary to attend to our own needs. We see this in the life and ministry of Jesus. He came and he became human with all of the limitations that come along with that. The limitations of time, the limitations of just being physically and emotionally and mentally exhausted. And so what we see is Jesus running from crowds at times because he was desperate for time alone, desperate for time alone with God, desperate to be in prayer. We see him seeking out community to be with his innermost group of people that he could truly just let his guard down with and ask for care and ask for support. We see him taking naps because he was physically exhausted. We see Jesus attending to his own needs. And I know that there are some of you here today who just naturally are so focused on the people around you that you often ignore your own needs. And then when you do finally have to pay attention, sometimes that comes along with some guilt. And I want you to know today that your needs matter. They matter to God. And that when we're thinking about having a heart for the hurting, it starts with us. For caring for and inviting others to care for our needs. And then it's out of the overflow of all of that that we can have a heart for those around us, that we can have a heart for their needs, that we can give generously our time and our resources. But I want you to know first and foremost that God has a heart for you, for your needs, for your hurting, for your pain. The second thing that we see is that prayer is vital to discerning our role in the story. Jesus lived this life of prayer and it doesn't always look the same. The way that you pray is gonna be different than the way I pray and the way that your neighbor prays. But if we think of prayer as this awareness of God in action around us and through us. You know, Paul writes that we live and move and have our being in God. And if we think of prayer as as drawing our awareness and our attention to the presence, to the love, to the action of God, and then from there discerning with God, what's mine in this? This is where some healthy boundaries can come in. With this situation, with this person, with this pain, with this problem, what is mine? How am I called and invited to partner in this process? What's theirs? What's theirs to carry in this? What's their responsibility? And then what's God's? Because sometimes you're gonna come into contact with people who are hurting and who are wounded and who are carrying things and it is above your pay grade just like it is above my pay grade and we need to trust with them that God is at work in their life. What's mine? What's theirs? What's God's? And I think we see Jesus do this. You know, we have three years of his life and ministry recorded in the Gospels. But have you ever considered what Jesus must have said no to? How many times people must have asked him for his time, for his resources, for his healing, and he wasn't able to accommodate because he chose to become a human with all of the limitations that go along with that? We see a few glimpses in the Gospels of Jesus saying no, of, of you know, running away from the crowds and different things like that, but I think it happened a lot. We have three years and he was confined 
by time and hunger and sleep and exhaustion, just like you and I are. And I think we see Jesus discerning with God what it looks like to be a part of someone's story. And then the third thing that I think we see is that our presence matters. That we are called to listen, to feel with the other person, and that we're not being asked to try to fix their thinking or their emotions or their actions, that, that this idea of a ministry of presence is a gift, and sometimes that is simply enough. I wanna share a story with you today that you're probably familiar with. It's when Jesus was away with the disciples and they were ministering and healing and doing what Jesus did so well while he lived here. And all of a sudden they received word from Mary and Martha that their brother Lazarus was sick. Now these are three dear friends to Jesus. And I think Mary and Martha expected that when Lazarus became sick and they must have been very concerned to send word to Jesus, I think they fully expected that Jesus would stop whatever he was doing and come and heal Lazarus. In fact, they knew that he could because they had witnessed Jesus do it for others. But what we see is that Jesus receives word that Lazarus is sick and he continues a couple more days with the work that he was doing. And then Jesus eventually makes his way back to where Mary and Martha were. And what happened is Lazarus is already dead. Martha comes out to meet Jesus on the road. And what we see is Jesus meets her uniquely in her grief. See, we don't all need the same thing when we're in pain and when we're hurting. And Jesus has a conversation with her. He engages with her in her rational thinking of the moment. She's, she's not really experiencing emotion in this moment. If you read through the story, it's, it's really in her thinking. And then Martha runs back home to where Mary is, and Mary's grieving with their friends and family. And she whispers in Mary's ear, and she says, Mary, Jesus is here. And that's where I want to pick up the story with you. We're in John chapter 11, verse 32 where it says, Mary came to where Jesus was waiting and she fell at his feet, saying, Master, if only you had been here, my brother, he wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. And he said, where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. And now Jesus wept. And the Jews said, look how deeply he loved them. Sometimes when we're reading the scripture, it's important to notice what we're reading. I think we learn from that. It's also important to notice sometimes what's missing and what's not there. The first thing that I do notice is that Jesus interacts with Mary and Martha differently. He meets them uniquely where they are in their pain. And we all grieve differently. And so he, he customized his approach. That was part of how he loved them in that moment. He allowed them to grieve the way that they were grieving. What he didn't do that I find interesting is that he didn't bypass their grief, which is something that I honestly, quite frankly, would like to do sometimes. 
I wanna just jump right to the solution. I wanna solve the problem. I don't have the power to do that most of the time, but Jesus absolutely had the power to just jump right to the, fixing the problem, solving it. And, and I imagine he could have bypassed Mary and Martha and gone straight to the tomb and raised Lazarus from the dead and then showed up at the house, surprise, but that's not what he did. He entered into their grief and their loss and their disappointment with them. He allowed himself to grieve with them. When the scripture uses the word anger there, that is one of the best translations I've seen for the original language. Usually it says that he was deeply troubled and distressed, which is good, but really what Jesus experienced was anger. He didn't try to justify his actions. He didn't try to explain God. I feel the need to do this sometimes with people. I feel the need to do this in my own life. God, why didn't you? You could have, how could this have happened? Jesus didn't try to give answers, even though I know he has them. He was just with them in their disappointment. Your presence matters. It matters to those that God is inviting you to just be with them when they're hurting. And then the last thing we see is that where there are tangible needs, practical action communicates care and love. Once you have tended to your own needs and you're giving and serving out of an overflow and you've discerned with God, what is mine, what is theirs, what is yours? You've been present with them if that's possible. Then you can begin to ask yourself, is there something practical that I can do? Can I write a letter? Can I send flowers? Can I bring a meal? Can I watch their kids? Can I put up their Christmas tree? Do I need to take them to a doctor's appointment? What are the practical ways that we can come alongside? One of the things I love about Rancho is that we have an opportunity to meet a practical need almost every week. It's amazing. We can't meet them all. We're not asked to meet them all. But is there one in your life, in your circle of influence, that maybe you are being invited to meet? Because that's one of the ways that we have a heart for the hurting. I wanna share a story with you as we wrap this up that I think just captures this so well. This summer, my husband's grandmother read this book. It's an autobiography, no, excuse me. Autobiography means he wrote it, it's a biography because somebody else wrote it. It was a biography of the life and ministry of Eugene Peterson. And he is responsible for the message, translation of the Bible. And if you heard me speak, you will maybe pick up on the fact that I use that translation more often than the others because I think Eugene just had such a beautiful way of capturing the scriptures and the heart of God. He lived this faithful life. So, Grandma read it, gave it to my mother-in-law. She read it, gave it to me. I read it and was so incredibly inspired. I decided I wasn't giving it back to them. <laughs> and then we were all together for a family gathering and uh, they subtly made it clear that they wanted their copy back. And so I ordered my own copy. That's how much his story spoke to me. You see, when Eugene was in college, what had happened was about year two, he started to experience some of this internal heaviness of his own. It doesn't use the word depression 
But that's what it sounds like he was experiencing, just this dark night of the soul, this heaviness. And what was especially difficult for Eugene was that he couldn't figure out why he was experiencing it. He couldn't point to a situation, he couldn't point to a circumstance, he couldn't point to something that happened that had caused him to just feel this sense of despair. And my guess is that many of you understand what that's like, that sometimes we just feel deep sorrow and disappointment and we we can't point to what has caused it, which means we can't point to what to do to fix it. So Eugene is experiencing this and he comes home for the summer and, and says to his mom, I just, I need, I need some help. I need to talk to somebody. I don't know what's wrong with me. And so she sends him to the pastor. And so Eugene goes and he sits down with the pastor and the pastor preaches at him and begins to warn Eugene about all of the things that a 20 something year old young man in college should really not be doing. But that wasn't what Eugene needed in that moment. He didn't need to be preached at. He didn't need to be warned of the things that he might have been doing wrong, but he wasn't actually doing wrong. But even if he was doing them wrong, it still wouldn't have been helpful. So Eugene went home and he still wasn't feeling better. So he decided to try again. He goes back to the pastor. The pastor preaches at him again. Same deal, same topic, same stuff. And and Eugene is thinking in his head, this is like, yeah, I hear you, but this is not... This isn't the deal. Thankfully, Eugene didn't give up. He tried again, went home, talked to his mom. That didn't help. Pastor didn't help. So what do I do? And she said, you know what? Talk to Brother Ned. Brother Ned was a spiritual giant in the church. He knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. Prayer warrior, someone that people respected and looked up to and had been leading for a long time. And so Eugene reaches out to Brother Ned. He says, Brother Ned, can we meet? And they began to meet regularly over the course of several weeks. And Eugene got taught. They went through a book of the Bible together in the New Testament. And what Eugene wrote in one of his journals was it was the most boring time he had spent in the scriptures ever in his life. And Eugene loved the scriptures, but that wasn't what he needed. He didn't need to be taught. He didn't need answers. And so Eugene was feeling pretty hopeless at this point. He didn't know what to do, but he knew he was still feeling this deep sense of despair. And one of his friends suggested that he reach out to and meet with a man in the church named Reuben. Now this surprised Eugene because Reuben was this big, burly, mean-looking guy. Reuben never smiled, never prayed out loud, What Reuben was good at is he was good at fixing things. If something needed to be fixed in the community or fixed in the church, they called Reuben and he showed up and he knew how to use his hands and the tools to fix things. That's what he was good at. And so Eugene writes in one of his journals that he was afraid to meet with this mean Reuben, this intimidating Reuben and reveal the tender places of his heart. And I think that gives us a picture of how desperate Eugene must have been in this moment to just get some help and some support and some care. And I wanna read to you what Eugene writes about his experience with Reuben. He says, for the remaining weeks of the summer, we met twice a week. No pious language, no heavy theology. He just talked to me. 
He treated me like a person. And when I got back to school, I was different. We talked about everyday stuff, tools, work, landscape, school. And that had such a massive impact. Reuben simply listened and treated Eugene with dignity. Reuben never viewed Eugene as an opportunity for ministry, but he welcomed him with a stance of wonderment. Pastor didn't help. The spiritual giant didn't help. It was Reuben that changed Eugene's life. In fact, years later, the book tells us several chapters down the road that Eugene calls Reuben up on the phone after years and years and says, Reuben, I don't know if you know this, but that time we spent together that summer, it changed my life. And Eugene could hear Reuben crying over the phone because Reuben said, Eugene, no one has ever said that to me before. And so as you and I consider today, what does it look like to have a heart for the hurting? I want us to remember Reuben. Because you and I, no matter our training, our life experience, our knowledge, we can be a Reuben to someone. And so Evan and the team are gonna come out, and as they do, they're gonna lead us in another song, and I want you to consider using this time to discern with God what it looks like for you to have a heart for the hurting. Does that need to start with you? Are there some needs in your life that need care and attention and concern? Does that look like being present with people in your life and holding space with them? Does that look like meeting very practical needs in their life? 